So um, we are in a series, if you are a guest with us and you don't know this, we are on a series on wisdom. And uh, last week, we were freezing in here. Is everybody warm this week? Like, I never knew how grateful I was for natural gas ever before. It was 52 degrees in this room on Sunday. So we met in the hallway, and we worshiped, and it was just, it was really sweet and special. But I realized at the end of that, what happened was a whole week got cut out of our sermon series on wisdom which means that there is a whole lot of wisdom that you will not receive from Heidi and I. You might also have guessed that that probably was going to happen anyway. There's just a lot of wisdom that you weren't going to receive from us. Um, So today I'm kind of stuffing a couple of things in here that I wanted to share with you uh, along with just a sermon, which is really out of me and out of what the Holy Spirit's been doing in me, and I hope that maybe it will be challenging to you. Uh, so I wanted to start with a cartoon that was given to me at the beginning of this series that I've been looking for a way to shoehorn in, and I think it kind of works, and, and, and it's from my friend Audrey. So if you are offended by this in any way, it's his fault. So here it is. This is the pathway of wisdom, and I'll let you just take a look at it for a second. I'll get out of the way. I'm coming down. Take a look. It's a slow roll. If you haven't laughed yet, keep looking. I don't get it. So when we started the series, we talked about, you know, there's, there's data out there in the world, right? There's just little points of, of, of information that are disconnected from anything, and it means nothing to you. So that's data. Information is when you start to have meaning behind that, that data. You gather it, and you, you learn a little something from it. Knowledge is when you connect the dots, right? You connect the points of data into a picture. That's knowledge. You get insight when parts of that knowledge kind of begin to glow. But wisdom comes when you have pathways between the knowledge. But a lot of people in our culture today tend to go past wisdom, right, wise living, and into conspiracy theories, and that's where you draw unicorns uh, out of all the dots. So that's just kind of a, I wanted to shoehorn that in here because it makes me laugh every time I find it in my texts. Um, so there you go. Second one is this. It's a Far Side cartoon, and I'll share it with you, and I'll just, you can all see it, but I'll read it. I'm trying not to be in your way. and <laughs> No matter where I go, I'm in people's way. So one remark led to another, and the bar suddenly polarized into two angry confrontational factions, those espousing the virtues of the double-humped camel on the one side, single-humpers on the other. Just let that sit for a second. Notice it turned into a bar fight. Now, this is what culture feels like a lot to me today. Um, And I'm not saying this to belittle the issues of our times, right, that we're reducing them down to single hump versus double hump camels, but in a lot of ways, we really actually reduce our humanity down to our issues, and we get in fights over things that we don't need to be fighting about, which is what that song was about, that there are two kinds of people, but really they're just the same. And my message this morning on wisdom really has to do uh, with the wisdom of the color gray. The wisdom of gray. Um, I'm going to read some uh, passages to you, some scripture passages. We're going to start there. Well, we're started with the far side, so whatever that means. But we're going we're gonna to read a lot of scripture. So you're going to have to bear with me. It will be on the screen behind me, right, Carrie? Okay. Carrie, I'm just going to treat you like my sidekick back there. So just shout out, yep, got it, or whatever. So, all right, here we go. So this is from Psalm 1. Ready? Happy are those who do not follow the advice of the wicked or take the path that sinners tread 
or sit in the seat of scoffers. But their delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law they meditate day and night. They are like trees planted by streams of water, which yield their fruit in, in its season, and their leaves do not wither, and all that they do they prosper. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that, are, that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor the sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the wicked, but the way of the wicked will perish. Pause for half a second. I should have said, I want you to pay attention as we read these and notice, just see what you notice about them. I'm going to ask you to shout some things out. So if you're one of those people that need to be prepared, this is your chance to prepare. What do you notice about these passages as I read them? Second passage is going to come from the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah in 17, verses 5 through 10. That was a weird sound. Messing with me now, John? John, John's messing with me now. All right, here's what it says. Thus says the Lord. Okay, God said this. Cursed are those who trust in mere mortals and make mere flesh their strength, whose hearts turn away from the Lord. They shall be like a shrub in the desert and shall not see when relief comes. They shall live in the parched places of the wilderness in the uninhabited salt land. Blessed are those who trust in the Lord whose trust is in the Lord. They shall be like a tree planted by water, sending out its roots by the stream. It shall not fear when heat comes, and its leaves stay, shall stay green. In the year of drought, it is not anxious, and it does not cease to bear fruit. The heart is devious above all else. It is perverse. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, test the mind and search the heart to give to all according to their ways, according to the fruit of their doings. Proverbs 11, 21 through 23. Be assured the wicked will not go unpunished, but those who are righteous will escape. Like a gold ring and a pig's snout is a beautiful woman without good sense. That seems like a t-shirt waiting to be made. And Audrey will wear it. <laughs> uh, the, right <laughs> the desire of the righteous ends only in good and the expectation of the wicked in wrath. And two more verses, ready? Proverbs eleven twenty four through 25. Now, I promise, this is all in the Bible. I'm not just making this up. I mean, it's on the screen, so it's, it's got to be true, right? <laughs> Proverbs eleven twenty four through 25. Some give freely, yet grow all the richer. Others withhold what is due and only suffer want. A generous person will be enriched, and one who gives water will get water. All right. What do you notice about all of these texts that I read. Is there anything that stands out to you? Go ahead and sh shout it out, and I'll repeat it. Dichotomy. Dichotomy. Can you expand on it? Say more, Jeff. Yes, they are extremes. Okay, they are extremes. Left, right, black, white. Mm -hmm. Okay, anybody else? Something else that you notice about them? The wicked don't thrive in any of those passages. So the bad people suffer, they lose, it's never good for them. You notice meditate on the word of the Lord, which is a part of wisdom. Okay. Trees that get water flourish. 
water versus desert. Uh, that's back to the dichotomy idea. Anybody else? Some more people on this side. This side's like, you guys are chatty. I don't have to worry about you. I don't have to worry about you paying attention today. Uh, this side of the room, though, you guys are a little quiet. So how about over here? Yeah, go ahead. You don't have to speak out. God, God gives accordingly to action. I heard trust God in the midst of that. That's okay, well, that's the end of my sermon. There you go. It's as simple and as difficult as that, isn't it? <laughs> Any, is there anything else that you notice? All right. Well, here's what I notice, and some of it's what you noticed, but because I wrote it in bullet points, I have to say each one of them or I won't feel complete. So the um, first one is that, like Jeff said, it sets up a dichotomy. I use the word a binary, um, kind of like you know, ones and zeros, binary language. Each, uh, there's two kinds of people in the world of the Bible, um, and we'd also say that there's two kinds of people really in our world today. It's wicked and righteous. Uh, each passage has something to say about uh, what each person, type of person gets, either a reward or a punishment. I believe that was said over that way. Uh, each passage describes how transient and short-lived wicked people are and how lasting and blessed the righteous people are. And each, each passage, here's the big thing I noticed about it, each passage seems totally out of touch with our reality. I'll let that sit with you for a second. Each passage seems completely out of touch with reality. That's just not how our world works. I mean, think about it. Jeremiah says that cursed are those who trust in mere mortals. Blessed are those who trust in the Lord. So let me ask you, do you trust anybody with your life? Do you trust anybody in this room with your heart, your, your husband, your wife, your spouse? Uh, that's the same thing, isn't it? A husband and a wife and a spouse. Sometimes wisdom comes through pondering. I had to think about that one. I mean, it's human, but we have to trust people. Otherwise, we would just live anxious all the time, right? It's a part of life. And yet, Jeremiah is saying, if you trust anybody, a mere mortal, you're cursed. And only those people who trust in the Lord are blessed. Uh, Psalm 1, you've got righteous people who are planted like a tree beside streams of living water. We love that one. Proverbs eleven twenty one through 25, be assured the wicked won't go punished. The desires of the righteous will only end in good. I've just noticed, I've known, and some of you are in this room, I've known lots of righteous, good, kind people, people that are filled with the power of the Holy Spirit and uh, just growing and, and alive, and yet they go through seasons of dark pain. They go through seasons of suffering. They experience grief and loss. Um, and sometimes it, it just seems absolutely unfair how much grief and loss that the righteous people go through, especially when you read it beside things like this, is that these people are going to be like these mighty trees planted by streams of water. Why is it that they're, they're blown about in the wind and the, the pain is causing them to shrivel up and not produce fruit? And I've noticed that sometimes there are wicked people that go unpunished. Anybody notice that? Been a few cases in history, a few cases hanging out there in the wind right now. Not, not yeah, not forever. And we can hold on to that, but it does a fat lot of good right now. You know, we can hold on to this. You know, that's good. But the reality, I mean, if you're under the, I'll use this example. If you're a Ukrainian man and Vladimir Putin is invading your country, and you're watching people all around you suffer and die, knowing that someday he will be rewarded for his actions, maybe a small comfort, 
but that's about all. It's not going to put food on your table, and it's not going to save your friends' lives. So, unholy people are often well-fed. Unholy people, unrighteous people, often prosper, and often prosper to the ends of their lives. And we do hold on to a hope of the future, and yet, in the here and now, it's not the way it looks. And just to throw a wrench in things, just to really throw a wrench in things, the Bible also gives us a couple of other books, like the book of Lamentations and the book of Job, particularly in Job chapter 1. God looks across the earth and he says, here is Job. He is a righteous man in whom there is no fault. Okay, when God makes that sort of judgment on you, you should feel pretty good about yourself, I think. So you get chapter 1 and then you get 40 some odd chapters of suffering, loss, pain, hurt, abandonment, wounds. It is ugly. It is one of the hardest books of the Bible to read, and it flies in the face of this, the righteous prosper and the wicked, it's just the opposite. And then you have Jesus. Jesus who models suffering as a way of life. The cross isn't just a pivotal point of history. The Apostle Paul says it's a pivotal point of our lives as we take up our cross and follow him. The Bible is full of what seems like contradictions, some of which will come off as fairy tales of prosperity and wealth for those on the right side of things, especially if you're outside the church, especially if you are impoverished. It just seems like insanity. We want to come to Scripture and read it and read texts like this like we would watch an Avengers movie, right? We know that there is a good side and there is a bad side, and everybody wants to be on the side of the good. We want to be on the side of the right. When there are contrasts, when there's uh, like stories like this in these texts, where there's a clear right and a clear wrong, we want to be on the side of the righteous. Um, there's the good team and the bad team, and we identify with good, and we start separating the sheep from the goats. It's biblical after all, and we cheer for the side, one side and we boo from the other. But the reality is that things are way more complicated than just that, right? That life is way more complicated than that. So I, I say this a little bit tongue-in-cheek, and I'm not saying that Scripture is a fairy tale, but what I am saying is that Scripture is more complicated than a clear black and clear white. It's more complicated than a clear righteous and a clear unrighteous. Life is more complicated than that that the people we encounter and that the news that we look at is not as clear-cut as the news reporters make it out to be. There is always gray in the mix. And probably most importantly is that you and I are not that black or white. We are not just righteous or unrighteous. We are a mix. So we need the wisdom of the color gray in our thinking. Um, it sounds a little bit poetic, but what do I mean by that? I, the gray is the space between black and white, right? It is that space between a one and a zero. I don't know how you mathematically talk about that space between a one and a zero, but you can do it with color because they blend black and white and they mix and they make a gray. Two-sided binary view of scripture and life and ourselves, uh, righteous and wicked people, good and bad, right and wrong, it's that black and white way of thinking. And our culture is really, really, really good at this. I mean, really good at this. You know, places like politics is really, it's, this is easy picking. Low-hanging fruit, right? When we talk about a binary, you're a Republican or a Democrat, you're conservative or you're a liberal, you're right-wing or you're left-wing. 
Um, and I fear, this is why, part of why I wanted to talk about this, is that, that we are moving so far apart as a culture toward our right and to our left that there will be no bird left in the middle. Just two amputated wings lying there, right? I, I mean, that's dark. It is dark. I love birds, and that's why this actually is really meaningful to me. I know. Yeah, it's, it's like, that's shocking. Uh, we're just going to be unable to fly if we keep moving to these two polarized opposites. We break all sorts of issues into black and white. It's race, gender, sexuality, war. War is always right. War is always wrong. In the current situation and in history, I mean, apart from individual actions taken in a moment, we can't judge a war as righteous or unrighteous, just or unjust. Church. Church is really good at this. We high church with the liturgy. We low church with just rock music. Are we hymns? Are we modern worship? Uh, we could talk about theology. Are we Armenian? Are we Calvinist? Are we Catholic? Are we Protestant? Are we men and women? You know, it just goes on and on and on. We have all these binaries. And then post-COVID, we're seeing, and this is being studied right now in the church because people are, I mean, really smart people are freaking out about this. We're watching the church move increasingly out of the gray areas where we're just letting go of people who don't think like us. And we're moving left and right. Theologically, church style, politically, we're just pulling ourselves apart. And again, we're going to be a bird with two wings and no bird to fly us anywhere. Just two amputated wings. So gray is that space between, between left and right and black and white. It's the space where we hold on to what can appear to be two opposed and opposite truths. Back to politics. It's not about being left or right, right wing, but realizing that no bird ever flew with only one. And we need the whole bird. Gray is knowing that it's not Protestant, Catholic, Lutheran or, Lutheran, or Baptist, but rather, like the book of Ephesians, we are one in Christ. We are united in him and no longer male or female, Greek or Jew, Republican or Democrat. We can keep adding all of the, the binaries that we, we are talking about. And this is what Paul was doing in Ephesians. He's saying, look, the binaries are gone. There's only one. Holding gray is the ability to give people the space to be right about one thing and totally wrong about another, and to admit that you might not be right yourself. So let's all practice this word, this, this phrase, I might be wrong, right? We've done this before. Let's just say it together. I might be wrong. It, and, and I might be wrong. I, I might be. I, I might be wrong. It was really uncomfortable, wasn't it? Let's try it again. Let's just... Let's say it loudly. Let's embrace this pain together on the count of three. One, two, three. I might be wrong. Right. Now, you got to use that with your friends, not just here at church, okay? I mean, that was, this was safe. I know you're thinking, you might be wrong, Jamie, and I might be. But I do think that there is a lot of wisdom in holding gray, in our reading of Scripture particularly. Gray is a nuanced way of reading Scripture. When you consider the, the contrast presented in Psalm 1, those who follow the advice of the wicked perish, while those who meditate on God's law prosper. There are wicked and righteous people who experience bad and good things. But here's the question of Psalm 1. Which one are you? Are you the wicked person or are you the righteous person? And how do we define those terms, wicked and righteous, in Psalms 1? How, how do we know which is which? 
We might say that the righteous follow the teachings of Scripture, but which teachings of Scripture? And in which way? And understood how? Some would focus on matters of personal morality. It's often viewed, though, through a really cultural lens on what's appropriate sexually, what's appropriate culturally, what's appropriate politically, what's right and what's wrong. We take all these things and we mix them into our reading of scriptures. We wear these lenses. So depending on your perspective, wickedness might be linked to drinking or abortion, or it might be linked to racism and the separation of immigrant families. And I would dare say that there are people on both sides of that in this room right now. You're like, I didn't realize I was thinking differently when I thought about righteousness as somebody else. But it's true. It's not clear. Uh, it's not clear. It is not that there is not a clear right and wrong. Did I get that out right? It's not that that doesn't exist. There are clear rights and wrongs. But it's that we approach what is right and what is wrong with a heart of humility. In, in my best reading of Scripture and listening to my conscience, listening to the Holy Spirit, this is what I see as right and this is what I see as wrong and I might be wrong. In the book of Genesis, I mean, this is, we go, I keep coming back to Genesis, right? Since Genesis, humans have desired to be the ones determining right from wrong. This is what we wanted. This is what broke the whole thing in the first place, to determine and to have the knowledge of right and wrong. And here's what we've seen since then. Humans actually now have a tendency to call what is wrong right and what is right wrong. To call what is evil good and what is good evil. So we have to approach our reading of scripture and how we treat one another and our views of right and wrong with this humility that we hold our convictions without convicting one another. Without convicting those who don't hold the same convictions. Because scripturally speaking, it's not our job to judge. There is a judge. There will be a judgment. But we will not be the one on the throne. We will be the one in the dock, right? We will be the ones being judged. And it's not like there isn't room for personal belief and conviction on some of these things. Again, to the best of my ability, in my reading of scripture, I think this is true. I believe wholeheartedly in the truth of the Bible. I believe there is a God and I'm not him. I believe that humanity is broken, as broken as broken can be. I believe that God has made us to be good and kind and loving and that Jesus has done the work to restore us and now the Holy Spirit works in us to will and to act according to his good purposes, to become what we were intended to be. I, I stake my life on this. But others won't. And how do I treat them? Again, since creation, there's been an enemy out there to confuse and deceive as to what is truth. That means that there are things that we believe in to be true that may not be true. And that there are some things that we to believe not to be true that maybe are. I like to say it this way, and if you've been around the church, you've heard me say this. 80% of my theology is dead on. It is like bulletproof, iron, you know, like it's a battleship. I could win a war with 80% of my theology. 20% of my theology will sink the whole ship. <laughs> it's completely wrong. And the worst part is I don't know which is which. Oh, dear. Yeah. I don't know what your percentages are. Some of you may be feeling like 99% of my theology is dead on. But I got to tell you, that 1%, it make that a leaky boat real fast. 
it is hard for us to know what is what. And so again, we come with humility to the scripture. We hold to opposing truths and we say, I might be wrong, but to the best of my ability, to the convictions of my heart and my spirit, this is what I believe. We hold our beliefs firmly, but with great humility, knowing that, as Paul says, we see now only in part, but then we will see in whole. So until that day, I might be wrong. We need the wisdom of gray and our understanding of the world around us. So we start with scripture, because this is where it starts for, for Christians. You know, we start with Christ and God's word expounding in our hearts and, and being illuminated in us, and then we take that humility, we take that knowledge, that belief out into the world, and it informs how we treat people. We need to move toward a, a less black and white way of thinking, because when we move to black and white, what we do is we isolate from one another. The church isolates from the culture. Churches isolate from churches, which is kind of the worst when you think about it. You got churches that move away from the culture because it's, it's, we're judging it as, as uh, decadent and, and wrong, and there's horrible things going on sexually or around alcohol or whatever moral issue it happens to be. We kind of pull ourselves apart because the Bi Bible does say to be separate, come out from among them. And then we got this one big separate group that is separating from each other. One of the first experiences I had in Pullman was calling a pastor, trying to get together other churches to pray together. And I had a pastor tell me, I will never pray with those Catholics and Episcopalians and Lutherans because, and then gave me a theological reason why he is supposed to be separate. We're just like judging each other and separating from each other. Conservative pastor Chuck Swindoll. Okay, this guy is like well-known. He's been around, he's dead now. And he actually shocked me with this quote. And this is what he said. He says, we evangelicals are good at building rigid walls out of dogmatic stones. Cemented together by the mortar of tradition, we erect these walls in systematic circles that become our oversimplified, ultra-inflexible position. Within each fortress, we build human machines that are programmed not to think, but to say the right things and to respond the right way at any given moment. Our self-concept remains undisturbed and secure since no challenging force is ever allowed over the walls. And here's the part where it really kicks you in the shins. If you've become one of these machines, stopped thinking and started going through unexamined motions, you've really stopped living and just started existing. Thanks, Chuck. Chuck Smith. No, did I say Smith or Swindoll? I wrote the wrong name in here. There's two Chucks. I wrote the wrong name in here. He's the one that said this. I was like, huh? I had the wrong name in my notes. Weird. Good catch, you guys. You're paying attention. Yes. So again, we're not God. We don't see the whole picture, right? We see in part now, but then we will see in whole. We look at ourselves, our world, our political choices, and our tendency is to say it's all one way or the other. Uh, the song that I played earlier that we will play again, they have this line in here about selective vision. It's like, we see what we only want to see, and it makes us half blind. We need to develop a little bit of humility as a people and say, from what I can see, I think this is the way, but I don't know everything, and I might be wrong. The Lutherans might have it much closer to what God intended for church than the Baptists do or than us crazy weird Pentecostal types or this funky mix of things that we're trying to pull off here. 
I don't know. But to the best of my ability, I believe this is the way. And here's another thing that we need to hold on to as we think about this from, from Chuck's uh, comment here is that we can be right about what we believe and at the same time be totally wrong because of how we hold our belief. Why don't you think about the woman caught in adultery in, in uh, the Gospels? So the, the Pharisees gather up this prostitute who was basically caught in the act. They let the guy go, and they drag her into the city streets. Everybody's getting rocks together. They find Jesus, drag Jesus out there, throw him out in front, and they say, this woman was caught in adultery. The Old Testament says that we are to stone her and to, to kill her. What do you say, Jesus? So it's like supposed to be a double trap. We get, a, we get a good stoning today, and we get to catch Jesus, and maybe we'll get a double stoning. And Jesus looks at them, and he says, you without sin cast the first stone. And everybody quietly slinks away. They were completely right in how they interpreted the Old Testament scripture. That law was their job. They were to stone this woman. But they were totally wrong in how they held it because God desires mercy. Jesus saw that these men were removing her humanity. And instead of giving in to what they perceived as right, he revealed how they were wrong. He revealed their own humanity, their own sinfulness. Jesus treated everybody there as a human with the dignity of choice, but the exposure of the reality of their own hearts. And what does that mean for us? We can hold what we believe to be totally right, and it might be, but we can hold our views in such a way as to remove the humanity and dignity of other people. And we lose the grace ourselves to make mistakes, to grow and to learn. If we do that, we are totally wrong. If our political views cause us to dehumanize people on the other wing, to call them losers or idiots or uh, pedophiles or whatever it happens to be, we are holding our belief totally wrong. And we will face judgment for it. Which is why we also need gray in how we look at ourselves. This is another matter where simplistic interpretation is really unhelpful. It's not usually a matter in life of just being wicked or being righteous people, but all of us having the potential for wickedness or righteousness. Maybe we don't like the term wicked. Um, I've been called worse. <laughs> I know it'd be, you know, some days, some days I'd like to walk through Walmart and just have somebody go underneath their breath, wicked, instead of F you or this or that. Some of the things that I hear... Casey, we had this today. Yeah. Not Casey doing it to me. Wow. It was the other way around. No, I'm kidding. Wow. Casey and I are on the same team here, right, Casey? We had a similar experience with this anyway. Okay. We would both prefer to be called wicked than what we get. Um, but don't we all just like struggle, like even in that moment, to, to do or say the right thing? Like even when we understand what the right thing is, isn't it sometimes hard to do that right thing? In Romans 7, the Apostle Paul says, I do the things I do not want to do and do not do the things I do want to do. If the Apostle Paul, okay, this is like one of the, probably the greatest brain of the church in all times. If he's saying that, I'm pretty... I don't know what that is. What is the opposite of humble? It's prideful. Pretty prideful 
to say that I don't. Rather than viewing Scripture as a lens through, lens through which um, I view right, the right or wrongs of others, a weapon of judgment, we're better off allowing Scripture to open a window into our own hearts and lives so that we can find a pathway forward to the growth that the Holy Spirit has intended for us. Again, Jesus in a parable in Luke 18, 9 through 14, about two men who go to the temple to pray. We have a Pharisee and a tax collector. You have the Pharisee who is a righteous man or would be a righteous man, and he condescendingly thanks God, right, that he is not like this sinner, this tax collector over here. And he, instead, though, you know, he prays this, like, I'm God, I'm glad I'm not like him. And then the tax collectors over there just pleading with God, have mercy on me. As we know that Jesus says that sinner, the sinner is the one who goes home justified because he has humbled himself. Our perceptions of righteousness don't always match God's. And the truth is, I'm a divided person, and you are a divided person. We are a sinner, and we are a saint. If we live in the camp of we're just a sinner, we will forever be underneath the pain and identity of a broken humanity. If I see myself as just a saint, I'm going to be self-deluded and self-righteous. If I'm a saint and I only see myself as a sinner, then I'm living beneath my identity, the identity that Christ bought with his life, that God sacrificed God's life to allow me to live into. But if I'm both a sinner and a saint, I am humble and in need of grace. But I'm filled with potential and with hope. I'm capable of more than I can ever imagine. I'm becoming something more. There is so much room within the sinner and saint model for the Holy Spirit to do a work of transformation and make me something that I could never be on my own, and yet it's in God's intended future for me. So the wisdom of gray and our reading of scripture and our approach to the world around us and to the church and our approach to ourselves is difficult to parse black from white and it's even more difficult to live within the gray. But I want to ask you a question to close. I've given you much to think about. What is one area of your life where you tend to be very black and white in your thinking that could benefit from a little gray about yourself, about the world, about scripture. I'm going to give you a moment to just ponder and think.
closing thought before we wrap up. I love the creeds. If you're familiar with the creeds, like the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, there's several others. Um, the creeds help us understand what we believe, right? I believe in God the Father. I believe in Christ the Son. I believe the Holy Spirit. I'm, I'm like singing the song rather than actually saying the creed. I think they're really important for us. They form our thinking. They form, form our believing. We say statements in these creeds that we, like, what does that even mean? And then we move to agree or disagree, and then we wrestle with Scripture, and it's really good. But it's really interesting that the creeds didn't come along until about 300 years after Jesus. So those first 300 years of the church, we didn't have a creed to inform us on what to believe. What we had was commands from Jesus on what to do. And I've noticed that I believe that we have replaced our doing with Christ. And we talk about being and doing, and be, this is really important, but doing is still something we are called to. We have replaced our doing with Christ with believing. And in our believing, we have separated and divided. We have, we have looked at one another and said, well, you believe wrong, or you're over the guardrails of orthodoxy, or you're in the middle, or we agree on this thing, but these five things we disagree on, so we separate. But if we stayed true to what Jesus called us to do, we would be one people, not two. And what did Jesus call us to do? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, all your mind, not be right, and then to love your neighbor as yourself. This is the call of gray. It's to let go of the left and the right and the right and the wrong and just to love your neighbor as yourself. To live as true as you can to the convictions of your heart and what God has called you to and to what you believe and to love people despite the differences. To hold on to the one another for all your, all your heart. One of the pieces of pastoral advice I give couples as they engage in like really hard stuff, like the loss of a child or whatever, I, I, if some of you heard this from me. <laughs> I look at you and I say, hang on to your spouse for all your worth because this is going to be what gets you through. The Holy Spirit will be in this with the two of you. And we got to do the same thing, guys, as a church, with one another, in the midst of this cultural upheaval that's happening, in the midst of war and famine and poverty, all the stuff we face, we got to hold on to each other for all that we're worth, to love each other as we love ourselves. That's the call of gray. It's a lot to ponder, guys. I know. I, you think, what I love about being up here is I can see you thinking. <laughs> I, can see, I can see disagreement cross your eyes. I can see agreement cross your eyes. I can see anger. I, all the different things is really beautiful. And now I'm like all nervous because I'm going to get it later. <laughs> but we've got to hold on to each other, right? Hold on to each other. And one of the ways that we do that is by singing our theology and singing what we believe. Again, like the creeds, we wrestle with it. But we sing the doxology here together. It's this truth that we hold to communally. So we're going to stand and sing it as we close. Okay? Would you stand with me? Let's sing the doxology, the old 99. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavens.
also say, no matter which side you're on, Jesus loves you. He loves you so much, and I love you too, to the best of my ability, and we're growing. Love you guys. See you next week.